that music means the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway for the week, starting a little bit early this Friday, because we've got a lot to cover today. Uh, Kevin Slack is an associate professor of politics at Hillsdale College. He got his B.A. from IU, Indiana. His M.A., he's an Aggie like my wife, his doctorate from the University of Dallas. He is a Benjamin Franklin expert. He wrote the book Benjamin Franklin, Natural Right and the Art of Virtue. We're so pleased to welcome here. And, of course, we are joined by Dr. Larry Arndt, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are included at hillsdale.edu. And the Hillsdale Dialogue, once a week, goes into a big subject or an old subject, and sometimes both. And Benjamin Franklin is both. Welcome to you. Dr. Slack, first time on the show. I, uh, I'm so glad to have a Franklin expert. Is he our most overlooked founder? I think that he's, uh, I think that people uh, very much like Franklin. You know, when they when they they ask people, they find out that Franklin's the founder. Most people would like to sit down and have a beer with. I think we often misunderstand Franklin. Uh, I think that uh, we look at him as somebody who was jovial, uh, who kidded around a lot, who was a genius when it came to electrical fluid and so on. Um, but that we often overlook the role that he played as a political theorist. Uh, that Franklin was, was quite radical in his youth, and that some of the other founders like John Adams or James Madison looked at Franklin and saw the importance, uh, saw the important role that he played in the formation of these this idea of republicanism that was so central to the Constitution. Now, in the Hillsdale Reader, which we are using uh, and which we're going to get through, we're going to start with the uh, his his memo to a, a young tradesman. But I want to jump ahead, Doctor Arn, to the the autobiography because I I think his thirteen virtues. 11 and 13 are the most memorable parts of that. Uh, the virtue he wanted, tranquility, be not disturbed at trifles or at accidents common or unavoidable. And number 13, humility, imitate Jesus and Socrates. Where have we heard that before? Yeah, there you go. Uh, he, he expands Aristotle's ethics, which has 11, I think. Um, but, yeah, he, uh, Kevin has written quite a lot about this, but uh, Franklin preached virtue and uh, was popular in part because of it. And he thought that being a virtuous people could be a free people and no other people could be. Because if you have to be constrained in all your activities, then the government will be overwhelming. And and, uh, if, on the other hand, you can just live your life, a thing that we're soon to pine for in America, the way things are going, then you can also have a chance to develop the virtues. So he, he was a he was a very, he was a, I've learned mostly from Kevin, by the way, that uh, he's a fundamental thinker. He's, uh, he's an amazing man. Uh, and, and Professor Slack, I am curious, everyone picks uh, a specialty for a reason. What, what got you hooked on Benjamin Franklin? Uh, I think it was an interest in the American founding, uh, and I, I wanted to pick somebody that I thought was the most reflective, and this that the, that the level of philosophy, Franklin, is, is often engaged, particularly as a young man, in conversations in his writings with some of the leading thinkers of the world, uh, uh, and then also plays a major role in politics. And so he combines the intellectual, uh, the intellectual life with the political life in a way I don't think any of the founders uh, quite measure up to, even though that's a, you know, a very powerful, influential generation. There's an interesting thing going on with your phone, Dr. Slack. Um, we miss every fifth syllable or so. I'm not sure what that is if you're on a speaker or walking around, but I, I, I hate to lose even a syllable here. 
Um, would you give the quick, for the, the Steelers fans out there, would you tell them a little bit about Franklin's background? Because it's, it's unusual and formative. And Philadelphia matters a lot in this, too. Yes. That um, Franklin, as a young man, right, grows up in Boston, and there he comes into uh, contention with the, uh, the Puritan leaders uh, and, uh, in the church, uh, that he associates with uh, the Massachusetts General Court, uh, the, the, say, the, the political rulers there. And so as a young man, he's a genius, and he feels constrained, and so he begins to challenge them, right? He described this in the autobiography, uh, uh, to the point where uh, he ends up leaving the town, uh, stowing away. He breaks an indentured uh, contract with his brother, uh, and he leaves to go to Philadelphia. Uh, and there, he, it's like a breath of fresh air, um, and so he leaves briefly to go to uh, to London. He thinks he's going to obtain printing materials. He's encouraged to do so by the by the uh, by the governor, only to realize that he has been uh, betrayed. He lands in London to find out that the governor uh, Keith has no credit to give, and so he's stranded in London. Uh, and uh, there he learns his trade as a printer. He comes back to Philadelphia and he starts to work his way up as a citizen of Philadelphia. As a, as a printer, a journeyman printer, and then he establishes himself in the community. He begins to establish all these uh, private associations. Right? We have the subscription library, the Junto, which he describes as uh, this uh, association that's key for the, the, uh, the development of morals and philosophy in the colonies. Uh, and then he takes on this political role. Uh, he's able to retire at the age of 42 because of his, uh, the virtues that he describes. And then he uh, leads in the defense uh, of the province. So uh, in 1748, uh, he writes this essay, Plain Truth, to try to mobilize an extra-legal militia to defend the province uh, as part of uh, King George's war. Uh, he also is one of the founders of education uh, in Philadelphia, uh, as well as establishing, playing a key role in the establishment of the hospital. So he's this central figure in Pennsylvania politics. He's elected to the assembly in 1751. Uh, and becomes the leader of the popular party uh, in the uh, in the Pennsylvania legislature, and there conflicts with the uh, proprietors. Uh, and it's there that he formulates many of these arguments of social contract, the idea of the, the natural equality and liberty uh, of the citizens and their right to rule only by consent, uh, and then is able to... Um, uh, becomes a, a key player in articulating those views that become central to the American Revolution. For example, James Madison would say that the uh, the, the theory of the American founding uh, in germ was present uh, in Franklin's letters to uh, William Shirley in 1754. And there he lays out this long argument for uh, consent of the people and Republican government. And, of course, we kind of know how where it uh, follows from there. Franklin uh, signs all the major documents of the American founding, right, the Constitution, uh, and so on. He, well, he is a tyro, Dr. Arne. And I, I mean, when you look back, I haven't read the autobiography in years, and I am reminded his energy level must have surpassed even that of Washington. And to go to London with no money, uh, I mean, Philadelphia's a pretty big city, and Boston's not a small place, but to land in London and be penniless and to make your way in the world, and then to come back and become this this tornado of civic mindedness he must have stood apart well the guy founded two ivy league colleges <laughs> really i didn't know <laughs> that did. yeah university of pennsylvania and columbia and <laughs> and uh 
I once looked up something interesting. I, I decided to look up the Ivy League colleges and see what they say about their missions. And uh, I can't find any of them except the University of Pennsylvania that refers to its mission anywhere prominent on its website. And it says that its mission comes from uh, Benjamin Franklin. And then it has a paragraph describing what the mission is. And all of the, all of the thoughts in it are utterly foreign to Benjamin Franklin. But that means he's powerful enough a figure in Philadelphia that they want they, they they like to keep contact with him even if they don't agree with him. Well, he is he is an amiable figure in history. I, I've been to his home in Philadelphia, and I think uh, Dr. Slack, you described what is the common understanding of him from Ben Franklin imitators who roam the country at conventions, and and we can <laughs> we can pick them out right and. He's the amiable man carried on uh, a, a cushion chair to the Constitutional Convention who gives witticism, but it, that's just not fair to who he, I mean, he's so central to everything. Yeah, I think, uh, and where he's really central, and this you know, ties into to the reading that we had, is, is, in, is informing the Constitution of a people. And by that, you know, at Hillsdale, there's this tradition of the great books that, that we keep alive. We often think of the Constitution as a document or a piece of paper, uh, but the most important Constitution is the habits of a people. And so Franklin, in these virtues, is trying to shape the habits of a people that will, that will really allow them to be free uh, and in, the, in creating this middling element that he saw was so important for a commercial republic. So the Constitution that Franklin really helps to shape that I think is most important is the way of life of a people that is then going to shape the interpretation of the document itself. Yeah, it's very interesting. In the autobiography, he says, we have an English proverb that says, he that would thrive must ask his wife. It was lucky for me that I had one much disposed to industry and frugality as myself. He's very practical, Dr. Slack. He's not, he's not a philosopher with whom it is difficult to grapple. He's just very practical. Yes, uh, and uh, you know one of the things uh, that when you think about Franklin's relation with his wife, I mean, it's also, uh, the autobiography is somewhat coy. So uh, Franklin is, uh, he's describing himself as being incredibly thrifty. As he gets older, and he does admit to this, uh, they become, uh, they spend a little bit more money. He mentions his wife bringing in uh, nicer, uh, you know, nicer objects into the house and so on. But what I like about that presentation is, is that Franklin is touching on some of the key things uh, that make a marriage possible. Right, some of these key practical things, right? Things like picking somebody who's industrious and frugal as you are, or if you look at Benjamin Franklin's wife, helping him in terms of running the store uh, and encouraging Franklin, uh, propping him up for the the printing business, uh, uh, as opposed I... to some very very romantic notion, uh, right? That, uh, that that might sound good in the short term, but might cost you in the long run. Yeah, this is not Jane Austen stuff, uh, Doctor Arndt. I'm curious about watching. Young men and women interact with Franklin for the first time. How, how has that changed much? Do they marvel at him? Uh, well, we work in a really weird place, and so they're disposed to like old things or to take interest in them at least. Uh, Franklin is. Yeah, uh, uh, I'll talk about my own case, but I see this in students sometimes too. Um, you can mistake that uh, Franklin is just talking platitudes. Uh, and, uh, in fact, I mean, first of all, he's an incredibly sophisticated guy, right? He helped develop what we know about electricity. He did some of the first population studies in history. He's, he's uh, a person who he didn't discover the Gulf Stream, but he 
figured out how to use it for sea travel. And he got the, because he did that, the mail came to uh, Philadelphia and New York from England two weeks faster. Hold it. Hold that thought. We're going to come right back to the scientist right after the break. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and his colleague, Professor Kevin Slack. Dr. Slack is an associate professor of politics at Hillsdale and a Franklin specialist when we went to break, Larry, on you were talking about his scientific genius. I didn't know about the Gulf Stream and getting the mail early, but but continue. He's yeah, he's a Renaissance man, but he's in the Enlightenment. Yeah, bifocals and uh, the glass harmonica. You know, he just he he was a tinkerer in one way. He would, if he got to doing something, it would occur to him how to do it better, and he just invented things. And he 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 believed he's a very generous-hearted man. He's a very rich man. Uh, he believed that his invention should just be given out to the public. So he, he, he inv- invented a better way to make a fireplace, you know, in the t- at a time when people depended on that for heat and cooking. And uh, he just, you know, he, so he just poured over. But then go back to something uh, uh, Kevin said. He wrote a, a long essay, 11 years Nine years, Le- eleven years before the trouble started with England. Did you say seventeen fifty four, Kevin? Yes. Uh, yeah. So nine years, and until seventeen sixty three, people weren't mad at England, right? And the, England started doing stuff and taxing them mostly, but a lot of things, telling them they can't go any farther west. And Franklin had had seen that before it became an issue, and that means that. Uh, James Madison was influenced by that, and James Madison was close to Thomas Jefferson. And so he did some wonderful original thinking that led to the American Revolution. I'm curious, Dr. Slack, is there much account of his interactions with Jefferson? Because what Dr. Arn just described is sort of Jefferson as well, the amazing intellect in the middle of a political philosophy. Did they, were they pals? Did they have a, a record of common chat as Adams and Jefferson did? Oh, well, not, uh, not as extensive as that. I mean, there was obviously an age gap, but of course they, um, uh, they both uh, shared many things in common. Their love of science, they were both inventors. They both very much were interested in the new experimental view of philosophy. Uh, as Dr. Arns just mentioned, Franklin, it wasn't just trying to understand how, uh, how nature worked. Right, which he would even say was was good in and of itself. This understanding of nature and its laws, but he always wanted to uh, he always wanted to attach it to something practical. So whether it was the the Franklin stove or with uh, electricity, right? Recall he's the one who he he thought that maybe if you electrocuted a turkey or chickens, they would taste better. And so he uh, actually shocked himself so badly, knocked himself out one time. So he and Jefferson shared that, that love of experimental science, but also very much a love of democracy uh, and the possibility of this, this new Republican era that they both wanted to usher in. Now, in the next segment, we're going to come back to the letter to the young tradesman. But I do want to focus on uh, the amount of time he spends studying. You know, self-improvement is a, is a huge theme in everything in the reader. And as I recall from his autobiography at length, self-improvement, it is an obligation to work and to study. And is that unique in early American letters that are not pastoral? 
the uh, the idea of self-examination and self-improvement I don't think is unique. What Franklin is doing is he's he's trying to reconnect that uh, puritanical focus on self-improvement, examination of conscience. He's trying to reconnect it with a more natural understanding of virtue. Uh, and so you find in this whole treatment of the virtues, he begins with this idea of moral perfection and even talks about conquering natural inclination. He gives these examples of moral perfection, with, uh, or you say philosophically, in terms of classical virtues, somebody like a Cato, a figure, uh, as well as appealing to the Bible. But then what you find is, is that the pursuit of moral perfection might actually hinder the proper ends of moral virtue, which is happiness. And so he has to reconnect the two, right? He realizes that uh, what he thought was moral perfection might just be a kind of foppery in morals. And what was most important was, was what were his actual habits, and was he better off for practicing the virtues? And so that's one of the conclusions. He has that wonderful story of the axe, yeah. right, where a man <laughs> yeah, goes grinding with the axe sharp, and he wants every bit of rust, uh, he wants every bit of rust is scraped off. And then he realizes it's this, this exertion, and he, uh, he finally concludes as a quote, a speckled axe is best for something, right? I mean, the, the basic end of the axe is as a tool for chopping down trees and wood. Uh, so he has to reconnect virtue to its proper end, which is happiness. Yeah, Dr. Ron, I, I am exhausted by reading his 13 virtues in his four-week program, his four-cycle program of a week each on the virtues. Uh, we have a minute to the break. Does, does anyone ever try that anymore? Oh, sure. Yeah, you know, everybody, you know, we work around young people who are all trying to make themselves better. And huge percentage of them are on a program all the time. There's, and that was, you see, one of the ways Franklin got rich was writing encouragements to things like that to people. Yes. Yeah. Well, we can, we'll come back next segment. We're going to talk about the tradesmen. I'm not sure we're going to get through Benjamin Franklin in one week. Don't go anywhere, America. The... Uh, the Hillsdale Reader, by the way, through which we are guiding our audience in early American liberty, is the American Heritage Reader. It's available at hillsdale.edu. It's edited by the Hillsdale College History Faculty. It's a wonderful, wonderful addition to a homeschooler's library and to anybody's library. Go to hillsdale.edu and come right back after the break. I'll be back with Dr. Larry Arn, Dr. Kevin Slack, as we continue to talk about Ben Franklin. Stay with us. You absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. to the Hillsdale Dialogue. If you're just tuning in, we've been talking about Ben Franklin for half an hour. We being Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and his colleague Kevin Slack, an associate professor of politics at Hillsdale College, and a Franklin, Benjamin Franklin scholar. And now we turn to a, a, a short essay that is just wonderful, Advice to a Young Tradesman. And I could tell you why I think it's wonderful, but I'd rather have uh, Dr. Slack tell us why it ought to be read by everyone and why it's in the Hillsdale uh, American Heritage Reader. 
Well, I, I think the reason is, is in Franklin's view, that the, the virtues really emerged from a confrontation with necessity. And that frugality and industry were two of the key virtues of the commercial republic that could, that could allow for a citizenry, the individuals to be free from any kind of a ruling class. So if you look at those virtues, uh, industry and frugality, they're not just virtues of the industry of desiring to acquire things that stir you from indolence, that get you off the couch uh, and get you to try to do something, right, in order to, uh, to gain. Um, but rather, it's a kind of virtue of the mind, uh, that it propels us to order the world around us in, this, in the face of necessity. Uh, for example, Franklin would say uh, that uh, fear of sickness and old age ought to move us to virtue, uh, and I, I like to tell the students, compare that to the later teaching in the, the 1930s, right, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the idea that necessitous men are not free men. Whereas for the founders, it was the confrontation with necessity, and particularly with Franklin, this confrontation with necessity that brought out these virtues that allowed you to be free uh, of some of those uh, baser uh, instincts. And if you look at the frugality, frugality is important because uh, it's not just saving the things that you, uh, that you earn, uh, but it also frees you from certain desires that would make you slavish. Uh, and so uh, for Franklin, uh, he wanted people to be free in mind. So frugality, he actually equates with kind of contentment. Uh, so in whatever station that you are in, and you're not going to be enslaved to these desires. Uh, one, one nice uh, uh, statement that he makes is, a plowman on his legs. So the average American farmer is higher than a gentleman on his knees, who's constantly in debt. And so that moral freedom is essential for a political freedom. You know, if, if we could get every young man and woman to read and believe this very practical advice about money, Dr. Arne, we would not have so many debt services and we would not have college debt at the level that it is. We would be much better off as a whole if everyone at least tried to adopt some of the Franklin practices vis-a-vis -vis money. Yeah, well, and as you point out, a lot of that's fostered by the government these days. You know, I, I, our auditors tell us that of the private colleges, uh, the typical one is collecting about $16,500 per student. The sticker price is actually 38 but they don't get that. But of the sixteen five, fourteen thousand comes from the government, and 9000 of it is loans. And, you know, young people take out these loans, and college is supposed to help their earnings. Uh, and they, you know, when it comes time to pay them back, they do have to pay them back. They're not dischargeable in bankruptcy. But the colleges themselves are not at risk. If they don't pay the money back, the college doesn't lose anything. And so that point, and in other words, that's just profligacy, just written into the thing. And, you know, we have caps on how much money people can can uh, borrow here, and you know we give out give away money like crazy to the kids, but that you know they 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 have to develop because just think, you know what what would it if if you read Aristotle's Ethics for example Franklin Franklin reminds me of that very much right it's a different kind of fellow Aristotle but he starts out with the the doing things the things you have to do right and if you're a coward you're useless. You're always quivering. He says once, you can't think if you're afraid of the bees buzzing, right? Mm. And, and, uh, and then you've got to restrain yourself, right? Uh, you, you've, you've, 
you've got to be fair with people. That's a big one with Franklin. Pay your money back on time. Oh, can uh, I read that? I, I think this is, he, he writes, he that is known to pay punctually and exactly to the time he promises may at any time and on any occasion raise all the money his friends can spare. This is sometimes of great use. After industry and frugality, nothing contributes more to the raising of a young man in the world than punctuality and justice in his dealings. Therefore, never keep borrowed money an hour beyond the time you promised, lest a disappointment shut up your friend's purse forever. That's a combination of virtue and practicality that is rare. Yeah. And see, it gives, but in Franklin, Kevin's the one who opened my eyes to this. Uh, Franklin, you know, Aristotle's ethics ends with the joys, the sublimity of contemplation of the ultimate things. Right, that's the almost the end thing. There's one little bit at the end. It's not that. Uh, Franklin, his own life, right? A lot of these speculations that he made, he didn't start out. He, he, Kevin points out he was quick to want to invent something, quick to want to put something to use. But the first thing that attracted him was just the charm of it. Just you know, I mean, he, he overhears these uh, uh, ship captains complaining that it takes him so long to get to New York from London, and others in other trades not carrying mail packets, they get there much faster. Why is that? Well, he just started asking around and collected lore from people who knew about the sea, and the next thing you know, he's figured out the Gulf Stream. And, And then, 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 he says, now, let's use this. Get here faster. Can, can you imagine, Dr. Slack, Benjamin Franklin coming at you as a young man? I mean, not the not the archetype we have in our heads, but a, a young Franklin, a 35-year-old Franklin trying to figure out the Gulf Stream. And he doesn't go to taverns. He says he's not for carousing and he's saving all his money and he goes to the public library, which he starts. How would he come at people? Well, I, I think that's part of the, um, the, the fictitious Franklin. If you look at the young Franklin... Uh, of course, they would always drink. They'd go to the Junto, and I don't mean uh, I don't mean they would get drunk, uh, but you know they would break out into you know into drink and song. Uh, I'd also point out that Franklin, we often forget, was a very big, robust young man who could get into fights. This is a very young man. I don't mean somebody who's you know forty years old getting into fights. Uh, so Franklin, as a young man, might come at you, and it'd be quite intimidating. Um, I think Franklin, as older man, had learned how to be effective. And so when he, he describes the humility, uh, he doesn't think that uh, humility in, that, uh, in the, the puritanical sense is actually possible. He thinks humility is concealed pride. But he realizes that humility is necessary to really know himself, to be able to hear criticisms of himself so he can learn about himself. And on the other hand, it's very effective in trying to persuade people. So the older Franklin comes at you by talking to you. He was very pleasant in conversation, trying to figure out what moved you, and then trying to persuade you uh, to, be, uh, to take part uh, in, different, uh, uh, in different adventures in the city. So why would he even write? And I'm going to come back to you and talk about religion in our last segment. Uh, we got about a minute here, Dr. Syke. Why would he even write a letter to a young tradesman? What was the prompt for that? I think he himself uh, was, you know, he was part of this middling artisan class, um, and he sees himself as uh, playing this role in cultivating this middling element that's key to success a city. Uh, and it's, uh, he, he thinks that this is, uh, makes for a better political order, 
um, but also that it gives it more power uh, in the legislature. Uh, so I, I think he has uh, this this moral end in mind. He really wants people to succeed. He's trying to help them along. And, of course, he's, he's enabled by that as well. Many of these associations were for people to work together for their collective advantage, whether it was the Junto, whether it was the fire insurance company, whether it was the fire companies themselves, right? These all started off as private associations. Well, and the library began as a private. I, I am curious, though, he does not ground it in his Puritan upbringing or in his Presbyterian faith, which we're going to talk about in the next segment. We only have five minutes in the next segment. I want to talk about his, his, his real religious beliefs, because I think they, uh, they shortchanged him a little bit in the note here. Uh, but does, does, does it all come from his belief that man is good or can be good? I think he thinks that, uh, that human nature is good, but that it's susceptible to many flaws. And so in one place he actually says, right, no human being is going to be perfect. We all have something to work on. On the other hand, he didn't like the teaching of original sin uh, that he found uh, in Presbyterianism. Yeah, Hold that. When we come back, the, uh, the b- religious beliefs of Franklin are often wrongly reported and minimized. Uh, and he's quite the student of faith. And it's, it's very important to get it right because he's not, as many people will conclude, an agnostic or an atheist. He just isn't. And we'll let Dr. Uh, uh, Slack explain that when we come back. Don't go anywhere, America. Final segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue is next. that happens in D.C. that you never hear about unless you're here when Hugh Hewitt returns. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Final segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, and who's the president of Hillsdale College and Professor Kevin Slack, an associate professor of politics there. Dr. Slack is an expert on Ben Franklin, and so I, I just would like you to answer what, in his autobiography, he lets us know that the Presbyterians don't do it for him, and he's got a pretty bad preacher as a Presbyterian preacher. But what, what, how do you summarize his religious view? I think you could break it into several parts. I think, first of all, and he gets into this in the autobiography, Franklin is quite atheistic, and what he meant by that was, and again, he describes it in the autobiography, is that everything is by necessity, and there's no such thing as human virtue. This is the position he has as a young man. He uses it in Boston to irritate all of the authorities, uh, to the point where the good people of the town, he says, viewed him with horror as being an atheist. The change that takes place uh, is not just one of Franklin's consideration of people's perception of him, but he actually goes back and he rethinks what atheism is. And he concludes, along with uh, some of the seminal thinkers for him, people like uh, Shaftesbury, that atheism really just meant perfect chance, chaos in the universe. And so uh, Franklin, in rethinking this, and he does this in a series of essays, challenges that initial position that he took. And he concludes that there is a kind of theism, meaning a pursuit of some kind of an order in the world, which he would call God and that there was limits to human knowledge, right? Limits to what it is we could know about God. For example, how it is the laws of nature we call physics work together with the possibility of human freedom. He also saw the necessity of virtue, not just in dealing with other people, but in considerations of his own life. So Franklin then um, is going to challenge orthodox teachings of Christianity for some of the same reasons he challenges atheism. Uh, if you'll notice, his criticism of, of, of Jedediah Andrews, the, the Presbyterian minister, 
he says, I didn't like the sermons because, not just because he didn't agree with the, um, uh, some of the dogmas of Calvinism, but because he says that the sermons themselves were dry and uninteresting and unedifying. Uh, so he was waiting for the sermon on morals. That's what he's trying to learn about. And he finds that all that's repeated to him are religious duties and, and dogma and platitude. The second reason he doesn't like uh, the sermons is because he says they're politically divisive. He says their aim was to make us good Presbyterians rather than citizens. Yes. So what Franklin is, is trying to do is to reconnect Christianity to moral virtue. He's trying to teach Christian morals as part of a natural law that could unify all the Christian sects in Pennsylvania. Well, when he says Jesus and Socrates as being his 13th idea of virtue, Jesus and Socrates, isn't he giving the game away a little bit, Professor, that he actually does? Humility, imitate Jesus and Socrates. If you're going to imitate someone and it's Jesus, Jesus makes certain truth claims. Did Franklin dispute those? I think he did, and I don't think this is much of a debate. At the end of his life, Franklin says to Ezra Stiles uh, that he he was never certain of the divinity of Christ, right? So Franklin was not a Christian in any normal way that we would use that word, unless you were to talk about, as he says, Jesus as constructing this important moral virtue that we've adopted uh, in, in Christian society. Uh, on the other hand, Franklin is very cautious in his criticisms. He's very careful in how he treats Christianity, I would say, in the middling and the later part of his life, because he realizes that there's something Christianity really offers to modern society, uh, particularly in its form of charity and goodwill. Uh, Christianity, Franklin, uh, connects to this notion of a desire to understand God in the laws of nature, uh, as well as a more peaceful understanding of commercial trade uh, that he thinks is superior to the ancient, uh, uh, the ancient mode. So Christianity for him provides a superior moral virtue uh, in its notions of equality and charity uh, one to another in society. Uh, Whether Frank was an Orthodox Christian, um, uh, I don't think so. So, Dr. Arndt, we're going to have to uh, impose upon Professor Slack again next week. I hope that won't be upsetting to you. But, uh, I mean, we have barely scratched. We haven't done his political theory yet, right? We're just sort of covering the man. Okay, that's okay. Kevin's willing. If he is willing. I'm glad to hear that, because I I don't know how you teach or even expose people to Benjamin Franklin in in one Hillsdale dialogue, and so we'll pick up there. But what would you recommend outside of the reader as the dispositive example of his political thinking, Professor Slack? Well, I mean, there are uh, some of Franklin's uh, major writings with the 1751 observations. Um, in 1760, writes the Canada pamphlet. Um, so I, those, are, those are two of the, uh, the writings. Okay, that I, I, we will add you know those. What, you real quick, I will say the three letters to William Shirley of uh, 1754. They're reprinted in 1766 as part of this colonial argument for consent after the Stamp Act. Okay, the three letters to William Shirley, the 1751 observations in the Canada something. Uh, we'll, we'll be back to them. Dr. Larry Arn, President of Hillsdale College, Professor Slack, thank you both. Hillsdale.edu for all things Hillsdale, America. And we'll be back on Ben Franklin and wrap him up next week on the next Hillsdale Dialogue. You're in the middle of a non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back.